Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us now is Dr. Tom Mankin, the president of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, one of the nation's most thoughtful strategists. Uh, Tom, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure to be with you, Vago. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo BRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall and general atomics aeronautical systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. It's great uh, to have you on a very important time. Uh, and I want to get to the uh, China strategic choices tool because that, you know, we had talked, uh, you know, when you introduced that uh, to have you on, and I'm glad that we have you on to talk about that. But, uh, and I know you're going to have a piece in foreign affairs uh, on this uh, soon. So I don't want to necessarily jump the gun, but we're in an atmosphere where folks have been saying, you know, China is is uh, the threat. Our, our mutual friend, Bridge Colby, you know, is, is all about, hey, we've got to focus on the China threat and we have to disengage from the world uh, to do it. Um, but there are folks who say, wait a minute, you know, Russia is the, the most active dog at the door. And indeed, what we're actually seeing is a genuine axis developing among these countries, right? Uh, we had Vladimir Putin join Xi Jinping uh, in Beijing last week. Uh, we had the Iranians attack the Albanians uh, for some reason. Uh, and as Jim Stavridis, uh, you know, uh, wrote last year and earlier this year in his book, you know, these countries may actually be in far more cahoots uh, than we think. The North Koreans are sending ammunition, for example, to the Russians. And Patrick Cronin on our program has, has discussed that they're probably going to send troops as well uh, to, to help the Russians. How is it we need to be thinking about the threat that it's it's not just a China and it's not just a Russia and a rogue North Korea and a problematic Iran, but actually the danger of all four of these guys actually flying in formation to make life exceedingly difficult for us? Any one of them is a problem. All four of them on the same Shia music is a more complicated problem. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Well, I think we need to start uh, by acknowledging the reality, <laughs> the, the obvious reality, that we're a global power. We're, we're not a, uh, you know, a, a, a super regional power, whether that region is Asia or Europe or the Middle East. We're a global power, and we need to start behaving like that. Uh, unfortunately, you know, across several administrations now, our defense strategy has really been uh, premised on being able to fight and win a single war plus, right, with a, uh, a, a, margin, a, a margin above a single war. But that, you know, that was a step down from the traditional kind of two-war uh, planning factor, two-war strategy that uh, administrations previously adopted. And I think what we're seeing now is we, we need to think about, we need to plan for, we need to resource for the prospect of a multi-theater conflict or, or multiple simultaneous conflicts. And um, yeah, whether that's a, a multi-theater conflict involving a single adversary, such as, uh, such as China, whose capabilities aren't, uh, aren't limited just to the Western Pacific anymore, or as you suggest, uh, a conflict that involves uh, collaboration between different adversaries, or even you know multiple uh, multiple independent but simultaneous conflicts, and uh, that really needs to be, in my view, my personal view, that needs the to be the baseline for our defense planning going forward. What 
does that necessarily mean budgetarily, right? We, along with every other, right? I mean, it's funny talking to a lot of my European uh, friends. It was great to go to the Royal International Air Tattoo, Farnborough, as well as talking to other, other nations where it's almost a real splash of cold water to recognize how much they've atrophied, right? They converted, for example, a lot of their high-end capability to help us in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, we know where we are on both of those, right? $4 trillion. But it also burnt up a lot of their modernization budgets. Uh, the French Air Force is a lot smaller and the Royal Air Force are a lot smaller, even though they're highly capable uh, forces, much, much smaller than our mental model of where they are. And even our forces, have been shrinking and, and continue to shrink. The US Navy is gonna to continue to shrink before it increases, arguably at the wrong time in the competition with the Chinese. Uh, and I wanna to get to that time frame uh, discussion as well with you. I mean, what, what, what kind of clear-eyed thinking has to happen and what's the kind of investment or the choices required to generate the kind of capability we need if what it is that we may be heading for is actually somewhat more of a world war uh, God forbid, uh, then I think a lot of people would like to admit, because we, we want to admit that somehow we can deter and shape and all of these other things. And Russia has shown <laughs> you can be very unconstrained <laughs> if you want to be. Yeah, look, so and there, there as you pointed out, and, and, uh, just in your, you know, in your question, there, there are uh, a number of dimensions to this, to this challenge that we need to, uh, you know, we need to get our heads around. So one is time frame, right? So, um, I think there, there are plenty of folks who uh, are willing to acknowledge, you know, that we are uh, in a, uh, in fact, have been in a long-term competition with, with China and Russia, have, have been for some time, at least they've been competing uh, with us. I think there are people that are willing to countenance the fact that we also face a, a greater possibility of great power war. But all too often, they they then kind of follow that up with uh, with some convenient assumptions, which is all right. Well, you know, uh, our adversaries will give us I don't know 10, 15 years to do all the things that we need to do, uh, you know, in order to prepare for for uh, for that eventuality. And uh, while one uh, may wish for adversaries like that, one shouldn't count on them, right? So, so the point of of time frame I think is really key. We we need to be preparing now. Um, and uh, you also, you know, touched on our allies, and I think our allies are uh, are a key element of this, both in Europe and in uh, and in Asia, the Pacific and Indo-Pacific region. And while our allies in the Pacific have been building up, and you know, uh, both uh, Japan and Australia, I think, uh, stand out as as excellent examples. Of allies that are taking the you know the threat seriously and are putting resources uh, towards it, um, our allies in in Europe, as you say, they they are taking the threat more seriously now, but that comes after uh, as you say a period of kind of decline and atrophy. So that needs to be reversed. So we need to be thinking about a not just a U.S. strategy, but a, an allied strategy uh, in both Europe and the Pacific. And one where we don't have the luxury of uh, of of time. So that means, you know, there are some things that we need to do now, um, some things that we we still need to do in the future, but things we may want to accelerate and and then other capacities, you know, where where we really need to start building up now 
um, you know, in, in areas like munitions, I think is just a, a, a great example of that. And, uh, and fortunately, fortunately for us, you know, the war in Ukraine has, has demonstrated that 21st century conventional warfare is highly munitions intensive. And so we have an opportunity if we take it, I'm, I'm worried that we're squandering it, but we have an opportunity to really get our house in order there um, to better position ourselves and our allies uh, for the types of very scary but increasingly possible eventualities we may face. And I want to get to uh, the munitions part of it because you guys have two uh, great studies that are coming out, one on the uh, lessons from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces uh, Agreement that uh, Ambassador Eric Edelman uh, did, who was somebody who was involved with it at the time. Uh, so he's got a lot of very great personal uh, insights, and you guys are rolling that out. I, I want to say September 19 uh, with Representative Mike Gallagher, and and you guys also have a study you're doing on on, on munitions. Uh, and I want to get to the strategic choices tool in a minute because we will get to some of those trade offs, right? I mean, the tool helps policymakers make better trade offs to build American capabilities. But in between those questions, uh, Tom, um, I want to get your sense on what you think the lessons China is drawing from Russia's war on, on Ukraine. The international community has put unprecedented sanctions on the Russians. Um, there is a sense the Russians are sort of not doing as badly. They're doing every, they're pulling every trick in the book and liquidating everything that they can to sort of make, you know, make it look like a duck that's not paddling furiously against the current, uh, but they are, and the long-term trends don't look good uh, for uh, Russia. Um, right. I mean, these sanctions are eventually going to bite are going to take a big piece out of it. It's going to reduce access to technology. Um, what do you think are the lessons that Beijing is drawing from seeing the international response, uh, you know, from from the entire Ukraine episode? What What's Beijing learning? I would put those lessons in sort of three baskets. Right. So um, the first basket uh, are the lessons that uh, we, we should like. The, um, and, and those are lessons such as the difficulty that Russia had in, and has had, for example, in, in, in suppressing the, the U- Ukrainian Air Force. And, and one suspects that, that that may induce some caution on the part of the PLA. Now, of course, the Taiwanese Air Force and the Ukrainian Air Force are very different. Taiwanese Air Force doesn't have, and Taiwan doesn't have, you know, the the geographic expanse of Ukraine. Taiwanese uh, Air Force doesn't have access to the array of airfields that Ukraine possesses. But I think there are certainly a number of tactical battlefield lessons that uh, should induce caution on the part of the PLA, and I think that's I think that's very good. Uh, a second set of of lessons, uh, I suspect the the PLA is drawing from the conflict are less comforting to us. And my my colleagues uh, Evan Montgomery and Toshi Oshihara had a, an excellent piece in War on the Rocks um, some time ago outlining these you know less comforting lessons. But but I think those lessons are things like it makes sense to brandish the nuclear saber sooner rather than later, you know, to induce caution on the United States. Um, Russia failed to decapitate Zelensky's government, the Ukrainian government. Doesn't mean that the Chinese will abandon hope of doing that. Maybe they'll they'll try, you know, try even try even harder. 
uh, to decapitate uh, the government in, in Taipei and so forth, right? So there, there are those less comforting lessons. And then my suspicion is that there's a third basket of lessons uh, that, the, that the Chinese are learning that just are areas that we tend not to pay a lot of attention to. So an example there is I would, um, I would not be surprised if the PLA um, chalked a good deal of Russia's difficulties uh, in Ukraine up to a failure of what they call political work. Um, if you will, the political in, in indoctrination and psychological indoctrination of, of troops, right? The fact that that Russian Russian soldiers were not really told anything about the uh, the invasion of Ukraine. They were sent into fight co-religionists, fellow Slavs, uh, their you know their their relatives in in some cases, and that seems to have had a real impact on Russian morale. Um, Political work is something that the uh, uh, that the PLA has has traditionally focused on. And, um, my colleague Toshio Shahara has been doing some really interesting um, work just on that. So I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if the PLA wasn't paying a lot of attention to the need to do better political work as they as they term it within the PLA right. in preparation for uh, a war with Taiwan. And they have uh, done uh, terrific work uh, on on that front. Um... I, I want to get to the strategic choices tool, but sort of I don't want to make this an editorial comment, right? I mean, you you said that it's it's you know somehow surprising that, um, you know that the war is somehow more ammunition intensive. I mean, and, and we've just been lying to ourselves, Tom, right? I mean, anybody who can fog a spoon knows that in any high intensity, uh, you know, war fighting, you burn through mountains of you know sadly people uh, equipment and ammunition we were burning through mraps and other kinds of systems with in at a ferocious rate and those were so called low intensity conflicts uh, right um, so this whole you know we just lied to ourselves to justify you know ever smaller boutique forces and you know well there's so much better um, that you know you don't need as much talk to us a little bit about the strategic choices tool um, and how it can actually help folks make better and arguably more realistic um, decisions, uh, you know, if you want to achieve the desired outcome, which is to deter the Chinese, deter the Russians and North Koreans and everybody else, but particularly in the Chinese context, which is a certainly a rising force, um, how to make better choices in that context. Yeah, well, our, our our baseline strategic choices tool, um, which which has been in existence for a, a decade now, you know, it, it came into existence uh, in the context of uh, of the Budget Control Act, and as a way of, as you say, helping decision makers make smart choices based on limited you know limited budgets, and it's now in its third version. So. Um, Strategic Choices Tool, the U.S. Strategic Choices Tool that we have is is version version 3.0, and and this was uh, you know the centerpiece of the effort you guys had along with uh, CSIS and AEI, right? When you guys were running those budget numbers uh, at the height of you know the Budget Control Act madness. Yeah, correct. We we've used the tool for uh, multi think tank exercises. We've also used it for various analytical studies for you know for. For the U.S. government, for for others, for for allied governments, um, and what's you know what's interesting to to your point is that inevitably when you do an exercise like this, you find that there's 
um, I guess we could <laughs> we we could use some jargon. We could say, uh, uh, you know, high demand, low density, or as or as late Secretary Rumsfeld used to more accurately put it, you know, stuff we don't have enough of. <laughs> so you always find that there's right. stuff we don't have enough of, and then there, there are uh, perennial bill payers, you know, stuff that we have too much of. And I got to say that across a decade of, you know, dozens and dozens of exercises, you know, one of the perennial shortfalls that, that uh, the, the, you know, the participants in our exercises uh, have found is with munitions. We just, so, so to your point, it should shock absolutely no one uh, that we're in the position that we're we're in. Uh, our strategic choices exercises have shown it. Now, look, I think there is there, there are bureaucratic reasons why, and and you know if 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 you're uh, if you're trying to you know if you're trying to get the program of record funded, you start with the big rocks, and the big rocks are your your, your major acquisition programs. And then you tend to worry about your little rocks, uh, not Arkansas, but the little rocks in your in your um, in your in your program later. And unfortunately, you know, munitions all too often have you know has has uh, been considered set of little rocks. They kind of you fill in around the, the the big rocks to make your program. So, what are the kind of big and little rocks? Very nice pun, by the way. Uh, you know, you stuck the landing on that, Tom. Um, so, what are the big rock, little rock choices, right? I mean, so from from your perspective and the familiarity with the strategic choices tool, right? If you have a limited number of investment, where is it that this investment should be going, right? Because there is an acknowledgement that we have a window of deterrence. Um, at some point, the Chinese, right? I mean, Chip Gregson is one of the people uh, who thinks. They may have already, the Chinese may already have concluded that they need to do this by force and, and maybe do it by force sooner rather than later, right? To your nuclear uh, point, uh, rattle that saber sooner than later. Um, we, we did get a little bit of a brush pack, uh, even though we're, we're sort of putting the pedals forward. The United States Navy will be smaller before it gets bigger at an inopportune time. Where would you be making some of these choices if you want to maintain deterrence? Uh, and if deterrence fails, war fighting capability. Well, I think anything that we can do to to bolster our capability, bolster our credibility in in the near term, we should be doing. So, uh, you know, when it comes to munitions, um, we should be building up, and we should be building up, not just for our own purposes, but again, as as we've seen with Ukraine, our munitions base really needs to serve three purposes. I mean, it needs to serve the U.S. armed forces. It needs to serve our allies because a lot of our allies are dependent, some highly dependent on the U.S. munitions base. And then it needs to serve others, friends, um, Ukraine today, um, perhaps Taiwan tomorrow. So we need to have a munitions base. We need to have a munitions um, funding stream that is robust enough to do all those, all three things at once. Now, the good news is, you know, if, again, if we think about the the munitions munitions as small rocks or little rocks, um, you're you're you know you're 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 procuring them, you're also selling them, and you're expending them. Really, what we should be thinking about is is uh, think think about our munitions stockpile as a you know as a tank of gas. And uh, a tank of gas that you always want to keep full. 
And every time you, you know, draw down your gas tank, whether it's your own expenditures or, or sales to allies or sales to friends, you should be able to just re, you know, refill your, your, your gas tank so that it's always full. Um, the current way that we, that we budget for munitions um, is just really inefficient and, and you know, multiplied by the dysfunction of the, uh, you know, of the defense budgetary process overall. Um, it just seems to me that there are much more sensible ways of, of doing this. Uh, and I should point out uh, to our audience, uh, that, that's one of the reports I was going to ask you about, right? That's one of the two reports that are coming out uh, where you guys actually look at the munitions uh, mixed. And I find it curious uh, that it took so long to build up the LRASM, uh, the long-range anti-ship missile uh, capability, which was a requirement that Rap Willard set, you know, almost two decades ago. Uh, and we are going to have 400 some out of these missiles by 2026, which I think is sort of insane, right? Why wouldn't you have many, many hundreds of these missiles, right? I mean, it's almost like the boutique nature with which we're building uh, anti-ballistic missiles for uh, the Aegis uh, cruisers uh, to increase uh, force uh, air and missile defense against the kind of threats we're likely to face. And we were moving too slowly, right? I mean, you know, what what are some other takeaways from that report without giving too much more of that away? Yeah, no, no, you're right. I mean, look, I think unfortunately, the way we've gone about procuring munitions, particularly these preferred munitions, winds up creating a self fulfilling prophecy, right? So you say, you say, oh well, they're really expensive, and then you go you go about procuring them uh, in a way that guarantees that they're going to be expensive, right? <laughs> you don't achieve uh, right. economies of scale. You stop and start your buys again. You've got continuing resolutions you're dealing with, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, if, I mean, if you want them to be expensive so that you can only uh, buy handfuls of them, uh, well, there's all sorts of ways to do it. But if you want them to be, you know, plentiful and available, there's other ways to do it. Uh, right. You know, the, the the Defense Department has talked a lot about innovation and about bringing in like new competitors into the ecosystem. Uh, I think munitions is a is a is a you know a, is a textbook example of where we should be doing that. Uh, if you're a if you're a startup or a, you know a lower tier defense contractor, a new entrant, um, you're probably not going to build the next, uh, you know, sixth generation combat aircraft that may be just a tad out of reach, but you sure could build families of munitions. And so if you really want to expand the munitions industrial base, you know, we, we should be looking for innovative approaches there. Um, yeah, all, all, all sorts of ways to, and opportunities to do things better, more efficiently and cheaper. So that's the baseline strategic choices tool. What about the specific China strategic uh, choices tool and how policymakers uh, can use that, right? Because ultimately we're trying to maximize the amount of capability, uh, the maximize the deterrence we're delivering. And you guys are trying to give policymakers a way to help make smarter decisions on that. Yeah, so the, the China strategic choices tool uh, is something that um, I'm really proud of because uh, it really is a, a one of a kind capability. And it's a little bit different than the baseline strategic choices tool because, of course, uh, Beijing doesn't publish uh, budget figures and we don't have cost figures uh, for various force elements like you do for the United States. So we had to take a different approach. We had to take a, 
uh, a cost estimating approach for a whole set of uh, Chinese capabilities. So I think we actually have a very defensible approach there. Uh, but it's it's like the baseline strategic choices tool. You know, it it puts cost, it puts value to various force packages that China is investing in or could invest in. And so it brings to the fore the fact that it's not just the United States that faces budgetary constraints, but also China does as well. China faces strategic choices. China faces trade-offs. And so what we've put in place with our baseline strategic choices tool and the China strategic choices tool, uh, coupled with war gaming, is the ability to game out competitive strategies, the ability to derive different alternative uh, Chinese force postures, to do all sorts of really interesting and I would argue extremely important analysis. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm so pleased that we've got the 1.0 version of this uh, China strategic uh, choices tool. And I was really play, pleased that uh, uh, retired Admiral Phil Davidson was able to join us a couple couple weeks ago to to launch that uh, launch that effort. But yeah, thanks for asking, Vago. Uh, it, it was a great discussion, and to let the audience know, right, just like the strategic choices tool uh, helps on the U.S. side, I should have been a little bit clearer. This is to give a better idea of the choices that China makes and the forces that it generates. So, what do its trade offs end up look like, and what do the the Chinese forces of the future end up looking like, depending on where the Chinese want to invest, right? So, you guys are actually building a more fulsome model of what the Chinese look like, thereby help us shape what it is that we need to do to be able to counter those kinds of capabilities. Just, just yeah, to no, clarify I, for the audience. Yeah, no, I, that's absolutely right, Vago. And just to point out to the audience, I uh, aired uh, Jim Stavridis was the co-author of 2034, uh, along with uh, Elliot Ackerman. So I did. I didn't. I just wanted to make sure I got uh, got that out. Um, give it. Talk to us uh, really briefly about uh, the uh, intermediate uh, nuclear forces uh, report uh, that you guys uh, have coming out as well. Uh, Representative Mike Gallagher uh, is going to be uh, speaking at that. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, extremely thoughtful member of Congress. Uh, walk us through what the primary takeaways and the lessons are at a very, very important time uh, of a very important agreement that was struck at the very height of the Cold War. Yeah, thanks, Bago. Yeah, we're we're uh, we're rolling out a uh, a pair of reports. Uh, they're they're already available on our uh, on our website, uh, but we're rolling them out officially with Congressman Gallagher on September nineteenth. One uh, is um, backwards looking, uh, as you say. Uh, primary author is uh, Ambassador Eric Edelman, uh, looking at um, the alliance challenges, alliance opportunities uh, associated with deploying, you know, somewhat somewhat controversial capabilities, and, and INF in the '80s uh, is you know is a good example of that. The second is a forward looking uh, forward looking report uh, looking at um, our munitions mix for ground launched. Uh, it, you know, intermediate range, short, uh, short, even medium, intermediate range uh, missiles in the Pacific and in Europe, and trying to look at what our munitions portfolio should look like, right? Just given given the geography of the two theaters, and given the you know our the, our alliance structure in the two theaters, and the basic idea is, um, you know, we we are no longer constrained by the INF treaty. Um, we face threats from, from Russia, from China, elsewhere, where ground-based conventional 
uh, strike systems would be tremendously useful. How should we think about that? How should we think about the mix of capabilities uh, that we should be investing in, in terms of range, in terms of characteristics, right? Uh, ballistic, cruise, uh, hypersonic boost glide uh, systems. Uh, how should we be thinking about US capabilities versus allied capabilities, co-development, things like that? And so the idea is uh, to really help decision makers in, in, uh, in Washington, but also in allied capitals, uh, think through uh, the requir requirements for conventional ground-based strike in, uh, in the era in which we're living. Absolutely uh, fascinating. We've got about two minutes left. I've got two questions. Uh, the uh, uh, administration has taken multiple bites at joint all-domain uh, command and control, JADC2. We have another uh, version of it, which puts the Indo-Pacific Command in the driver's seat, working with the Deputy uh, Chief Information Officer. Are, are, is this the right approach ultimately, right? I mean, everybody acknowledges the need for us to figure out this problem. The question is how to figure out the problem, right? Um, as Frank Kendall, the Air Force Secretary famously said, what is it you're trying to accomplish, right? What is it you need to connect? From your standpoint, is this the right uh, approach to it? Well, on JADC too, yeah, I think we are, you know, we're we're heading towards common sense, which as you know, as you uh, as you quoted Secretary Kendall, you know, it's it's to do what? What do you want to do? Um, and so the real, the real starting, you know, starting place for command and control, uh, really should be your, you know, your operational concepts, you know, the, the, what are you trying to achieve? And then what's the command and control arrangement? What's the joint all domain command and control arrangement that you need to make that happen? So, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're heading in a sensible direction. Uh, and on the Taiwan Policy Act, um, obviously, uh, this is something that uh, many members believe is important. Uh, it includes very important military cooperation uh, elements, including ways to build interoperability between U.S. and Taiwanese forces that has not simply existed uh, to date. But it also includes things that uh, some people regard as provocative toward China, for example, granting Taiwan non-NATO allies uh, status, elevating the embassy uh, to a, a full uh, embassy. Uh, what, what's your sense as markup begins uh, tomorrow on the right path for this? What are the important determinant elements of it? How do we do this in a way that doesn't become kind of excuse for causes belli, even though, frankly, I think the Chinese are on their own track and are going to manufacture crises no matter what it is we do, right? So if it wasn't Nancy Pelosi, it would have been some other reason that would have caused them to go bananas, right? Uh, so what's what's the right balance from your standpoint as as lawmakers trying to figure out where we should go on this? Well, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And the balance, I, I for me, the balance needs to be weighted towards doing everything that we can to help Taiwan defend itself. And to work with Taiwan uh, to defend Taiwan should it become the target of aggression, and we should not be unduly constrained. We should not be self-deterred in doing that, uh, because I think, unfortunately, you know, in the case of Ukraine, in a number of cases pr uh, prior to February twenty-fourth, we were self-deterred, and you know, I think we would be, and Ukraine would be, in a better position today. Uh, if we had, you know, if, if we had not been self-deterred. And so I think we need to learn the lesson there and do everything that we can prudently do uh, to, to help Taiwan now when it can have the maximum deterrent effect. 
Uh, and I commend to our audience to go uh, back and listen to the program we taped last week uh, with retired United States Marine Corps Lieutenant General Chip Gregson, who used to head the Indo-Pacific office in the Pentagon, uh, as well as retired uh, U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, uh, where uh, who was the J-3 over in Indo-Pacific Command. Uh, and we talk about the, the uh, TPA uh, issue. Uh, Tom, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much. Uh, look, already looking forward to having you back on uh, again uh, soon, and certainly would love to have Ambassador Edelman on uh, because it's been too long since we've heard from him to sort of get drill a little bit deeper into uh, INF uh, lessons. Thanks so very much, and and keep up the great work at CSBA. Thanks, Vago. Always a pleasure, and look forward to talking to you again soon.